Good morning, and welcome to the Donuts and Divorce podcast, where in the early morning hours, fueled with some strong coffee and donuts, we tackle the hard topics about families going through a separation or divorce. I'm Dorothy O'Neill, your host. I'm a partner and founding member of BOK Law and Mediation Services, located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I practice in the field of family law. I also serve as a neutral mediator in divorce and separation cases, and I'm a trained collaborative divorce practitioner, which means I can offer a unique divorce process used to settle cases outside of court, listening to the specific needs of the family. In today's topic, we've titled Cohabitation Nation, the era of living together without being married. So just as it would suggest, cohabitation occurs when you reside with somebody who you are in a relationship with, but you're not married. And I've asked attorney Alexandra Koselko to join me once again. And as you may know, um, Alex focuses her practices on family law and estates. So again, welcome, Alex. Thanks for joining me again this morning. Sure. Thanks for having me. And would you agree that cohabitation is something that we've been definitely seeing more of, right? Um, I mean, the statistics are pretty clear that even since the 1980s, it seems as though the numbers have nearly doubled or more of people living with a partner outside of the confines of marriage. And those numbers continue to rise. I mean, it's pretty much suggesting that more and more people are wanting to cohabitate before marriage, uh, you know, as like a precursor to marriage, or they're even choosing not to get married. And so they're just living together. And there's some complexities that can arise with that, right? Absolutely. And I I definitely agree that those numbers are going up. Uh, And not only are the numbers going up, but I think as people become more wise to some of these issues, where they're talking to attorneys more maybe than they would have done back in the 1980s or before. So we're getting more questions about that or people coming to us saying, this is my situation. What can I do? What do I need to do? Things like that. So Alex, how is living together unmarried different from living together as like a marital unit? So the main difference is in the legal side of things, because what a couple does, you know, within their house sometimes doesn't really matter to them whether they're married or not. You know, you would probably treat your partner who you're living with very similarly to how you might treat your spouse but it's the legal side of things where those differences really arise. So if you're living together without the protection of marriage, you don't have those legal supports that you would if you were married. So those include things like the division of your assets, support, um, but there's also a number of other things like you can't have taxes jointly if you're not married. Um, So there are a number of differences from the legal side of things if you're married versus unmarried. And I would just tell the listeners to remember that in Pennsylvania, at least, when you are married, the assets available for distribution, it doesn't matter how they're titled. So for instance, if let's say you have a husband and your husband has a 401k titled in his name only, and you're the wife, and then you guys are going to divorce, the wife still has a claim to the husband's 401k, even though it's only in his name, which clearly is a huge difference. You know, if you are unmarried, there would never be that right, correct? So what can be done for people who do want to put in place some protections and they're about to, you know, enter into a cohabitation arrangement with their significant other? Absolutely. I mean, there are definitely things that you can do to help 
protect yourself and protect, you know, your partner, because I don't think people enter into these types of arrangements thinking, oh, I just want to help myself. I don't, I don't care what happens to the person I love and am living with and in a relationship with. Um, so one of the things that can be done is to sign a document called a cohabitation agreement. And honestly, that document in many ways can be very similar to a prenuptial agreement. The main difference is you enter a prenup in anticipation of marriage. You really just enter that cohabitation agreement either because you're living together or you're anticipating that you will be living together soon. There's no requirement as part of that cohabitation agreement that marriage be imminent or even on the horizon at all. Maybe you're not even considering. Absolutely. And I want to highlight the point that you just made just a little bit further. So obviously, we we technically have three types of agreements that we can draft for people. There's the cohabitation agreement, which is just as you described it, you know, people who want to live together, they may or may not be getting married in the future. But for right now, they just know that they're going to be living together and they want to kind of outline a roadmap for what that looks like. There's the prenuptial agreement, which, as you indicated, is in anticipation of getting married. There's also a postnuptial agreement for people who have already been married, but maybe circumstances change and they want to make sure that they have an agreement in place in the event of um, divorce or separation in the future. And sometimes that's people getting a very large inheritance or they are entering into a business venture and they want to make sure, you know, to protect those assets. So, We usually see those three main types of agreements, and I would agree with you wholeheartedly that what I've been seeing lately are a rise in people who are not as afraid of these agreements as they used to be, right? Um, Because they are protecting both sides. It used to be the reputation of these agreements was if somebody handed you a prenup, uh uh-oh, right? They're trying to pull one over on you. It's last minute. It's scary. There's a negative connotation that comes with it. But now I'm seeing it even in young couples who, um, you know, prenup, I know this is kind of going more towards prenups, but younger couples who are about to get married and saying, you know what, we're both going to continue working and we want to just keep what's ours and what we earn during the marriage. But we're also seeing them in, you know, obviously uh, second marriages, you know, people who are a little bit older that are wanting to protect their own assets. But the same can be done with cohabitation agreements. I mean, it's just about kind of being smart about, you know, entering into a relationship with somebody that goes just further than maybe even just leasing an apartment, which we're going to talk about. But if you take that extra step to like buy a home together, you're kind of legally bound. And so it does make sense to kind of create a cohabitation agreement, which can be a roadmap for your separation if that occurs down the road. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I would definitely agree with that. And I think agreements you talked about, you know, the, the cohabitation, the prenuptial, the postnuptial, It's not uncommon for people to maybe start with a cohabitation agreement and somewhere down the road they decide, oh, well, we're going to get married. And so they can, we can kind of convert the cohabitation agreement to a prenuptial. And and whether that means the terms stay the same, whether they change depending on circumstances. Um, So just because you get a cohabitation agreement doesn't mean down the road you can't decide to get married. Like it's not a bar in any way. Absolutely. Good point. So, We've referenced this cohabitation agreement. Let's dive a little bit more into what's in it. What are some of the terms that we can put into cohabitation agreements? So essentially anything um, within, you know, reasonable uh, confines, um, because the cohabitation agreement is really just, it's a contract. It's a contract between two unmarried people 
in a romantic relationship and they're living together. I mean, by nature of the fact that it is a cohabitation agreement, <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen one where people are living separately, but I guess perhaps anything is possible. To each uh, their own. <laughs> and so it, it basically outlines the rights of each party, but also the responsibilities of each party. So, you know, what those exact terms are, are going to depend on each couple's needs. Um, so, for example, if you're leasing versus owning a home, the needs of what's going to go into that agreement are probably going to be very different because the obligations that you have are different under a lease versus owning a home, having a mortgage or, or other expenses associated with that. But overall, the purpose of that agreement is to protect both parties and provide for what might happen if the relationship ends. And I want to be really careful about this because I think a lot of people think about a cohabitation agreement is there if you break up. But it also can be used in the event that a relationship were to end because one of the parties passes away. And, you know, that's not something that a lot of people want to think about. And, and I doing the estate planning, I get that side of it. But it can be really helpful because if you're living together and, and maybe you've lived together for a very long time, but you're not married. You, as the surviving you know, partner in that relationship, don't have the same legal protections that you would if you were a surviving spouse. So that cohabitation agreement can provide what might happen to property in the event, you know, one of the people in the relationship pass away, how things might be divided, anything like that. Um, also, you know, some of those things can be done via a will, but the, the agreement itself can maybe be more specific, talk a little bit, go into more detail or things like that. So just to take that a step further, Alex, can you give us an example? Like if I give you a hypothetical, can you help explain what might happen? So for instance, if you and your significant other purchase a home together and you're unmarried, um, what would happen in that circumstance if somebody passed away versus if you and your spouse purchased a home together and you are married? So some of that is going to depend on how the house is tight because your spouse is, it's going to pass automatically to the surviving spouse. But if you purchase that home outside of the confines of marriage, there are two, essentially two different ways that you could own a property jointly. You could own that property as tenants in common, or you could own that property as joint tenants with the right of survivorship. If you own the property as a joint tenant with the right of survivorship, you will, the surviving person in that relationship will receive the property in full. But if you own that property as tenants in common, then what's going to happen is the person who is, is surviving in the relationship, they're going to keep their one half of the property, but the other half of the property is actually going to go to the estate of the person that passed away. And depending on who those beneficiaries are, there could be a lot of issues. And, you know, if maybe there's animosity there between some of the beneficiaries and, and the surviving person. It might result in that house having to be sold or a lot of litigation may ensue. And it certainly isn't a situation that I think anybody wants to be in. So that's why it's so important to talk about these things and, and understand because I've had conversations with people, even friends who don't necessarily know how the house was titled or how things were, what type of deed was it? Um, and I explain, you know, why it's so important to know that. Um, and certainly there may be reasons why you might want to go with tenants in common, but I just think it's important to make sure that you know what you have and know what will happen and that it's actually what you want. Absolutely. That's why I kind of phrased that hypothetical to you, because I don't think people realize what could happen and the nightmare that could ensue, honestly, from a legal perspective, if you don't do this just right. 
So what other terms do we usually include in cohabitation agreements? Because, we're, you know, we're talking a lot about if somebody passes, but let's talk more along the lines of with that separation or even with the day-to-day expenses that arise when you are kind of cohabitating with somebody. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the big triggers for people to come to talk to an attorney about a cohabitation agreement is when they're buying a property. You can absolutely have one if you're just, you know, renting or leasing a property. There's nothing that says you have to own the house to have this agreement, but that is usually a trigger. I've actually talked to friends um, who have, you know, purchased a home with their significant other and it's a realtor or like the closing company that have, have asked, do you have this? Like, what is your plan if this relationship goes south? Um, So I think that even might be one of the reasons we're seeing more of that is because those questions are being asked of the couple when they're purchasing or closing on a home. So what can go into that agreement would be obviously what would happen to that house in the event that the relationship ends. Like would one party keep it? Would the house be sold? How would the proceeds be divided? So that I think is what people often think of is, okay, the relationship's going to end what's going to happen when we break up. But that agreement also can provide for what's going to happen during the relationship. So how are you going to pay the mortgage? Are you both going to contribute equally? Is one person going to pay it in full? Is it going to be based on maybe a percentage if maybe one person makes more than the other? The taxes, are you going to pay the taxes? Are you going to pay the taxes? Utilities, household expenses, um, all of that could be outlined in a cohabitation agreement. And again, you know, these agreements, just like a prenup or a postnup, the terms vary depending on the circumstances. So some are very, very, very specific and include every possibility under the sun because that's what the parties want. Some are more broad because they're really only concerned about, you know, specific issues or specific concerns. Um, and, and with that is, that's why you need to talk to an attorney, see what the issues might be, and really have those conversations. And I think not only is entering into that agreement the intention to protect both parties in the event the relationship ends, but I also think it sets people up for a really, you know, more solid relationship because you've talked about these things. You've considered how are we going to pay bills? How are these things going to be handled? I think all of these types of agreements sometimes get a bad rap, you know, because, oh, you're only signing that because you're you're thinking you're going to break up or you're thinking you're going to get divorced. And I just, as an attorney doing these things, really disagree with that outlook because I think it makes a lot of relationships stronger. I, I see a lot of people who didn't have these conversations about finances, about assets, and I don't think that's beneficial to the relationship. I would agree with you. I have come across quite a few people who have cohabitated with their significant other, did not have a cohabitation agreement, and very much regretted it because they didn't think about these things. They were not forward thinking. And then, of course, you know, kind of chaos ensued as to who's going to keep it? How's that going to look? And there were arguments and everything. I don't think I've ever come across a couple who regretted entering into a cohabitation agreement. I'm hopeful that the bad reputation that these agreements have had in the past is kind of going away at this point with the education that's coming around with it. So people are kind of understanding now why they are important. And one of the other things that I see pretty regularly, one of the first questions I think I get when we're talking about cohabitation agreements from potential new clients or even new clients is the down payment. That seems to be what is one of the most important aspects to them. So a lot of times 
you know, if people are going to buy a house together, each might be contributing to the down payment or one might have the funds for a down payment and the other may not. Um, so there are protections that we can put in place in a cohabitation agreement that says you're going to get your down payment back first off the top of any equity. Or, you know, we can outline and give that protection for the down payment, which normally wouldn't occur. Like once you put a down payment in, usually it's gone. It's just kind of molded into the equity of the home. And without a prenup or a cohabitation agreement specifically designating that the payer of that down payment gets it back first, it's gone, right? Yeah, and so that's a really good great example of the protections that you can put in place for both sides as it relates to, to the down payment. And I did want to point out, too, we're talking a lot about a house and, and owning a property, but the cohabitation agreement is not limited to just what will you do with the house. There could be other you know joint assets. Sometimes when you have a, a joint house, now you've got a joint bank account to pay bills and things like that. Maybe you have joint insurance or other types of assets or even liabilities, joint credit cards, things like that. So that cohabitation agreement isn't just limited to the house. It can encompass all joint assets, joint liabilities, or other assets or expenses or things like that that might be important in the relationship. A pet. I've seen a pet and them designate pretty much what would happen with the pet afterwards. So um, yeah, there's a lot that we can include in these agreements. So I think we focused on, you know, what a cohabitation agreement is, what are some of the terms that can, can be included in it, why it's important for protection purposes in the event of death or in the event of a separation or ending of the relationship. So let's talk a little bit more about if you do not have a cohabitation agreement and you end your relationship, okay? Because you know, if you don't have one of these in place, there's no binding legal contract that can be enforced through the court, right? Well, we're going to scare you a little bit with looking Right. It's, it's, this is, we're the naysayers, right? As attorneys, we have to kind of say, okay, this is what could happen. So if there's no agreement, first and foremost, then there's nothing to kind of outline what that roadmap for separation is. So you can't really then just stop anybody from ceasing to contribute to the expenses, which could then in turn impact credit potentially. So it, it can just be a mess, right? And then also, I would say there's a difference if you're leasing versus if you're owning. So um, if you're leasing, the lease may still be in both names. So you kind of have to deal with who's going to stay and finish paying out on the lease. Is somebody going to move out? Are you going to fight over that? Or, you know, if both parties have to move out because neither one of the parties on their own can afford to continue living there and paying on the lease, then are there penalties for ending the lease early or some places require you to just pay out the full remainder of the lease, even though you're not going to be living there. So, you know, you have to think of all of these things that could happen if the relationships end and you're jointly named on that lease. Do you have anything else to add on that, Alex? No, I think that covers it. I mean, the lease is a contract with the landlord, essentially. So, you know, the end of your relationship doesn't mean that suddenly you're both off the hook and the landlord's got to figure out what to do with that apartment. You know, you both presumably, if, you, if you're both on a lease, you both signed that contract and you're both liable under that contract to the landlord unless you can work something else out directly, you know, with that person. And so if you own a home and you're now going to end your relationship with your significant other, the questions are, are you going to sell it? 
Is somebody going to stay in the home and buy the other person out of the equity in the home? Who's going to move out? Are they going to move out right away? So a lot of you know issues can arise as part of that as well. And if you can't reach an agreement on whether it's going to be sold or whether one is going to buy the other out of the equity, then the only legal recourse available is... Um, pretty much filing a petition with the court, going through civil court, and the action is called a partition action. So you basically file what's called a partition petition. That's a a tongue twister, but um, basically what you're doing is you're asking a judge or a court-appointed master to hear your evidence and make the decision as whether the party is, or I'm sorry, the property is going to be divided or sold. And there are a couple different steps involved with that, this court action. I mean, there's a preliminary conference and then there could be a master's hearing. You may have to hire appraisers to figure out what the value of the property is in order to figure out what the buyout amount would be. Uh, you might have to give testimony in a hearing setting. So obviously, this can be very expensive. Um, it can be pretty lengthy. I mean, as you may have heard from us in the past, court appearances, they're long in duration, meaning you might not get a court appearance for several months down the road. They're not like 15 minute court appearances either. You kind of go in and sometimes you have to wait until your judge is available because the judge has a huge caseload each and every single day. So just because you're supposed to be at a specific time, you may not actually get that time. You might have to wait. And then giving testimony, there's usually direct examination, cross-examination. So there's a lot involved in it and it can be very, very expensive. So I guess our point, and we're not trying to scare you too much, but we kind of are, um, is that you can save yourself potentially thousands of dollars by being forward thinking and entering into an agreement ahead of time. Absolutely. And uh, two things that I was thinking when you were talking, one is about, you know, you talked about if somebody just all of a sudden decides to stop paying the mortgage or something like that because the relationship ends, there might be a recourse as part of that partition action that you mentioned. But if it takes you six months to get you know that court date or something like that, that's six months that either you're stuck paying the mortgage in full or if you're only paying half of it, is that hitting your credit? And again, there might be a recourse for that. You might get that money back down the road, but it doesn't change the fact that Right then and there, that month, the mortgage is due and you can't say, oh, mortgage company, hold on. You know, six months from now, I might get an order from the court. They want their money now. You know, you can't wait. And then the other thing, you know, we've talked a lot about joint property, buying a house together. But I think the one scenario we didn't talk as much about is what if you decide to live together, but the house is owned by just one person in the relationship? Then what rights or, or you know, does that other part, you know, partner have in that relationship because their name's not on the house. And if the relationship ends, all of a sudden, are are they out on the street? Like, you know, what's the circumstance? So if you're the person in the relationship who doesn't have your name on the house, maybe you want a cohabitation agreement that says, if the relationship ends, you get 30 days before you have to move out. Or maybe there's, you know, if you've been contributing to the mortgage or to the household expenses, Maybe you get a cash payment for that or something like that to to help you get your new place and, and kind of move on from there because the other person gets to stay. They've still got the house. They've got all that, you know, equity and things like that. But you may be starting over because you've been living in, in that other person's house during the course of the relationship. So I think it's important if you buy together, but it also can be very important if either your one person's you know, buying the house or maybe that person already owned the house pre-relationship and you're, you're just moving in 
to that, your partner's house. So I think that's something to consider as well. A great point. Absolutely. I mean, there's no one size fits all. Everybody's relationship is different and there may be different legal ramifications depending on what they're doing. So again, I know we push it all the time, but talk to an attorney about what your rights are, preferably before you enter into any, you know, especially before you buy a home, it would be smart to talk to an attorney about what you should be doing to protect yourselves. And that's all we have for our Cohabitation Nation podcast episode. I hope you learned something about this. I know, uh, like I said, we've been seeing it far more frequently. So I think it's important for you to kind of educate yourselves on what your options are. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Donuts and Divorce podcast. If you have a question or comment, please feel free to email me your feedback at doneal at boklawfirm.com. I do make every attempt to read everything, but I can't necessarily respond directly to you. I may use your questions and comments as inspiration for new shows. Remember that the Donuts and Divorce podcast is intended as a general reference and is considered general advertising. Any listener should check for changes in any applicable laws and should consult with an attorney on any legal issue. No attorney-client relationship is formed by listening or participating in this podcast. The information provided does not constitute legal advice and any thoughts or commentary by the podcasting lawyers is provided as a service to the community and does not not constitute solicitation or legal advice. Any information provided is on an as-is basis and the lawyer and law firm make no warranties and disclaims all liabilities for damages resulting from its use. Nothing provided in the podcast should be considered a substitute for advice of competent legal counsel. And in the event the podcast receives emails about the subject matter, no attorney-client relationship is created via that email communication. Thank you. Thank you.